This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic of Bloomberg Quick Take. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Week 48 working from home oh, still. Oh, but who's counting, Carol? <laughs> For so many. I guess apparently I am. We were at Bloomberg headquarters in New York City. And man, it was a week, Tim, where there were so many cryptocurrency headlines this week. We're going to talk about that and what's going on with Bitcoin and all of those cryptocurrencies with former FDIC chair Sheila Baer. And we're also talking toys. Looking forward to hearing about how Mattel is creating more culturally relevant toys and also just what a good year 2020 was for the company. Yeah, big time. Also, so many of us can't wait to get on a plane again. I cannot wait yeah. for work, for fun. We've got the outlook for travel. I mean, I'm excited to go somewhere. I don't really want to sit on a plane again. No, I don't. I don't miss being in airports. I don't miss being on airplanes. I love airports. But I miss going places. I love airports. All I right. love walking around. We're going to hear from the CEO of Travago. All of that to come. We begin, though, with an interesting interview this week. And Tim, it's around COVID. It's one company that actually made some news this week. We're talking about Tonics Pharmaceuticals. Shares surging this week and really this year. You might recall the stock was the target of day traders last month, touting the company on message boards for no apparent reason, as Bloomberg reported. Well, this week, the stock shooting up on news that it's developing a COVID-19 antibody skin test. Yeah, it really caught investors' attention. This was a really interesting interview. It, it, we both really liked it. Tonics, by the way, also working on a COVID vaccine, and that's where we started the interview. We're developing a vaccine primarily that stimulates T-cell immunity. It's based on a live viral vector that's called horsebox, and it's a one-shot vaccine that we believe from historical parallels could provide decades of protection. We have monkey data supporting the vaccine. So we were very happy when we announced that we're de developing a skin test that will measure T-cell immunity to COVID. And we think that this is important because there are two arms of the immune system, antibodies and T-cells. Antibodies are transient. They can be measured for maybe three or six months, but T-cells last for years or decades. So we think it will be very important to figure out how many people have T-cell immunity instead of just the antibody test. How, how long do you think that will stick? Or, I mean, how long do you think we will have to know this? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about this in the context of right, us being on the other side of this pandemic at some point, but how many more years do you envision us actually needing to get tested for immunity? Well, unfortunately, I think that COVID is here to stay. I, I think it's the majority opinion of people that, of experts, that COVID will become endemic after okay, the pandemic. So, well, I, I just want to make sure I understand this. Here to stay, we've only eradicated one one thing, and that is smallpox in, in around the world. Smallpox, we were very fortunate, was eradicated because it was extremely deadly. 30% of infected people died. But part of the success of, of smallpox eradication was the vaccine that was used. And the other part of the success with smallpox vaccination was that there were no animal reservoirs. And by animal reservoirs, I mean that no other non-human animals got infected with it. With COVID, we already know that's not the case. Minks, hamsters, uh, tigers, a variety of different animals get. So it's very, unfortunately, unlikely that this might be eradicated. So I think that the solution long term will be childhood immunization in the same way that we immunize for MMR, measles, mumps, and rubella. 
we probably will go to a system of immunizing children. And that's why we think a vaccine like ours, a live replicating vaccine, which can provide years and decades of protection, is the best solution for that post-pandemic COVID problem. Um, but it wouldn't be infants because a live viral vaccine is, is for, um, you know, in, in the case of smallpox, it was administered to children at about five years old or so, uh, but not, not for infants. But yes, I think that that would be the plan. But clearly, first, we have to get out of the pandemic. And for this, I think we're all extremely grateful to the people who have quickly developed these vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, and maybe now these adenovirus vaccines. Uh, they definitely have a incredibly important role, and I can't wait to get mine. So, you know, first we have to put out this fire, and then we can go to more uh, durable solutions. So, and forgive me, I just want to go back to, because I know in just reading in uh, before you were coming on, and I know you are working on the vaccine, but what about this skin test? Because it does seem like investors are very enthusiastic. Are they wrong to be so enthusiastic about that and not focus on the vaccine instead? The skin test is very important. I was mentioning the vaccine because it tells a little bit of the story about how we got to the skin test. But the skin test is very important because we really don't know how many people have immunity and we can't measure it. So there are many cases, for example, where there's a husband and a wife and one of the spouses gets infected, the other cares for them, but, for example, the caregiver frequently doesn't get sick, doesn't develop antibodies, etc. We believe that a number of these cases actually T-cell immunity develops without antibodies. There, it's now known by much more complicated laboratory techniques that T-cell immunity is protective of developing serious disease. So we just think this skin test is important and we think the excitement is justified because we would really get a better handle on how much T-cell immunity is in the population. We're going to be in human trials with both of them, we believe, this year. But I think in terms of you know, getting out beyond trials, hopefully 2022. 2022, Tim's got to say, it feels like a long time away, at least right now. And it is, though, also a reminder that we're going to ultimately need multiple vaccines to get ahead of all of this. That was Tonics Pharmaceuticals co-founder, CEO and chairman, Dr. Seth Letterman. Coming up also in the news this week. Bitcoin. 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 We check in with a former banking regulator who's not a fan. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Another big story this week, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin jumping to a record high after MasterCard and Bank of New York Mellon moved to make it easier for customers to use cryptocurrencies. Felt like the global corporate community, Tim, was all of a sudden weighing in on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Yeah, it did. And really felt like Monday morning was a turning point. It's mm-hmm. when we learned from a Tesla regulatory filing that the company would hold $1.5 billion of the cryptocurrency on its balance sheet. Also in crypto news, <laughs> Elon Musk saying that he, quote, bought some Dogecoin for Lil X, that's his son. Right, it is. And I got to say, too, the wider Bloomberg Galaxy crypto index touching a record as well. Everyone, everyone talking about uh, crypto this week. Although, Tim, I got to say, not everybody is a fan. 
Yeah, Bank of Canada said the cryptocurrency boom is speculative mania. And Carol, you caught up with Sheila Baer, former head of the FDIC, who was there during the 2008 financial crisis, along with Bloomberg News Wall Street reporter Shanali Basik. Sheila Baer doesn't see Bitcoin replacing the dollar at least anytime soon. First, let me say uh, I'm expressing my individual views. I'm not speaking for any any companies I'm affiliated with. And, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, look, I don't I don't give a financial advice. I can tell you my, my <laughs> personal uh, philosophy on this is, is that, you know, stay away from it. it it's volatile. Uh, it's at nosebleed levels now. Uh, we don't know how sustainable that is. Uh, you know, if, if you're a very wealthy person with some, some money to risk, uh, fine. But, no, I don't have a lot of confidence in it. I mean, the problem with Bitcoin is it is so volatile, right? So its original promise as a as a method of payment, really, its volatility gets in the way of its usefulness as a method of payment. I mean, there's some if you're if you're buying a very expensive car, maybe you know, I guess that's the idea with Tesla. Mm. But uh, I'm skeptical. I, I've always been more interested in the technology uh, that underpins uh, Bitcoin as opposed to the, the Bitcoin itself. Right. Uh, I think blockchain distributed ledger technology has a whole host of use cases that can make our financial system much more inclusive, much more efficient, um, well, less costly. Uh, and so that's that's where I think people should be focusing in terms of finding real value. Let's talk about that for a Bitcoin. second, more okay. specifically. I, I was very surprised to hear you say that about Bitcoin because I have heard you talk about how digital currency could have done more during this pandemic to get money to people who needed it. How far right. away do you think our financial system is from that actual that sort of thing actually happening? Right. So I was speaking. So there are lots of different cryptocurrencies. Uh, Bitcoin is, is the granddaddy of them all. Uh, it's a lot of hype around it, a lot of nostalgia, a lot of romance around it. But when I spoke of, I was talking about stable coins. There are a cryptocurrency that is that is tied to the dollar. Disclosure, I'm on the board of a company that, that offers a stable coin that, that is like that. It's a dollar for dollar collateralized. You give a, a dollar to the company. It goes into an FDIC insured bank account or a short term treasury. You're issued a dollar of, of, of cryptocurrency representing that. That maintains stable value because it's fully collateralized and tethered to the fiat currency, the U.S. dollar. So it's those, and there are other companies that offer these. There, there's a possibility the Fed through a central bank digital currency, could digitize a dollar as well. But that's what I was talking about, not using Bitcoin, but using a a crypto version of the dollar that's tethered to the dollar so it maintains stable value. That's interesting because there's a ton of people out there who invest in Bitcoin that don't believe in the dollar, that don't believe in the current financial system as we have it. What would you say to those people? Well, I would say I believe in the dollar a lot more than I believe in Bitcoin in terms of holding value. (laughs) Uh, you know, look, I, I, people who know me know I've, I've been a critic of the highly aggressive monetary policies we have uh, we have pursued since the great financial crisis. Uh, it's not manifested itself in inflation. It, we've got an asset inflation. It's got some very un- other unpleasant side effects in terms of the the buildup of leverage, uh, inflated financial asset values. So I, I you know, I, I, I'm not in love with the with the, the monetary, the highly accommodative monetary policies we have pursued. But even given that, uh, yeah, no, I would I would have a lot more confidence in the dollar than I would in Bitcoin. Again, it's speculative, it's volatile. Uh, understand it. Uh, don't you know buy it unless you can you know withstand significant losses because well, it goes up, but it goes down too. What about other countries? Right, we know China is right. racing to do a digital currency. If the U.S. doesn't catch up, what's at risk for us here? 
Well, that, that's a good point. And again, the China's uh, central bank currency is tied to the RMB. It's tied to their own fiat currency. So they're they're not they're not using Bitcoin to do this. They're using a, a, a cryptographic version of their own uh, their uh, the RMB. So uh, yeah, and I think uh, most observers uh, think that part of the well, there's some privacy issues around the China's use of, of uh, cryptocurrency because you can. So the good news and the bad news, you can really you've got a you know, a, a, a very clean trail of transactions. So there, there's privacy issues around that. That may be good if for law enforcement purposes. It may be bad right. for privacy. But but also, um, I, yeah, I, I think a lot of observers think China wants to become the reserve currency eventually, the world's reserve currency. Right. And if you have if you have if you have digitized your own uh, fiat currency going into these developing countries where they're already heavily involved, they have unstable currencies, it's very easy to get those countries to adopt the digital version of your own fiat currency. Hey, something we wanted to ask you about, Sheila, is we heard from Fed Chief Jay Powell. He said workers, small businesses, they still need continued support. You have been very vocal about wealth inequality and the need for many U.S. families to build financial security. Um, What do we need to make sure with this latest COVID relief package? Right. Well, I, I think it's uh, it's right to focus on uh, household payments, and uh, people of goodwill can say, "Well, is it fifty thousand, seventy-five thousand? Uh, but I, I think they need to be sizable payments, and uh, that need you know that using fiscal policy, we can get the money directly into into household budgets where it can be saved, it can be used to pay down debt, or it can be used to spend. Any of those are good uses uh, of money. Um, you know, the, the the wealth inequality since the great financial crisis really has gotten much, much worse. Uh, low middle income uh, families um, have been saving more, but they're still, their ability to build wealth has paled in comparison to the, the very top echelon of society, which has benefited so highly from uh, the monetary policy we were talking about earlier and in inflating financial assets. So they need more uh, financial security. So if the money's saved, that's a good thing too. If it gives them more financial security, they spend it, that helps the economy. Uh, so I, I think that should, first and foremost, be the top priority. Mm-hmm. Continued supplemental unemployment benefits, again, uh, direct household support is important. Um, I, I think the uh, uh, those are how I prioritize it. There's controversy around uh, help to state and local governments. We have definitely seen that to be the case. That was former head of the FDIC, Sheila Bear, along with Bloomberg News Wall Street reporter Shanali Basik. The full conversation can be found on our podcast feed at Bloomberg.com. Sheila addressed the responsibility that banks have to minority communities. Next hour, we'll hear more about that with the founder and CEO of Runway, which is looking to close the racial wealth gap for good. And Tim, speaking of race and culture, still ahead, inroads towards inclusivity. We're going to check in with the Mattel CEO on creating culturally relevant toys. That and an update on the company's strong, really strong fourth quarter. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So, Tim, quarterly earnings season in the U.S., yeah, it's largely over. We still heard, though, from some well-known companies and big brands throughout the week. One in particular, Mattel, they had a really, really strong fourth quarter. Yeah, you know, we hear a lot about 
trends during the pandemic, but yeah. nothing more puts a smile on my face than the image of grandparents and parents buying their kids toys because they're they're stuck inside and they you know want their kids to be able to do stuff. That was kind of an interesting storyline out of 2020. Yeah, exactly. And the toy maker specifically, Mattel, surpassing analyst estimates during that fourth quarter. They had its best performance in years. Listen, e-commerce was up, dolls and more really leading the way at the company. Well, Carol, you caught up with Mattel chairman and CEO Enon Kreis. That's right. And we kicked it off with talking about the company's performance. This was an exceptional quarter for Mattel with our best performance in years, uh, really driven by strong consumer demand and another milestone year for the company. For, for the second quarter in a row, we achieved double-digit sales growth, outpaced the industry, and gained share on a global basis. Our, you know, our results really exceeded expectation on, on pretty much across the board with the highest fourth quarter growth in 15 years. Mm-hmm. and a significant increase in profitability with full-year operating income that was two and a half times higher uh, than last year. But this is not just about the quarter or the year. It's, it's about a multi-year turnaround that is tracking very well, uh, which puts us in a strong position to continue to increase profitability and accelerate our growth in uh, 2021 and beyond. You know, talk to us about that, because, you know, reading through some of the, the research and uh, there are, you know, folks saying, well, listen, it's really because of the pandemic. Families are home. They've had to find different ways to spend time with their families, uh, games, you name it, and kids, you know, being at home that uh, parents were spending a lot more on toys. Talk to us a little bit about what you have been doing and your team have been doing at Mattel to really kind of juice some of the brands that have been, you know, that have been in your portfolio for, for a long time. Uh, you know, there's no question that COVID, uh, the COVID lockdown drove strong demand uh, for toys. Uh, and the year ended up seeing extraordinary growth for the industry. Uh, you know, the toy industry proved its resilience, is that it's a strategic category for retailers, and it highlighted the importance of play. Uh, but the demand driven by COVID, however, is, is difficult to quantify as the industry was projected to grow even before the pandemic. And we believe that much of our overall performance has been driven by the work of our organization and by the strength of our brands and quality of our products. We didn't just ride the wave. We outpaced the industry and gained share on a global basis in the third quarter, the fourth quarter, and the full year. In the U.S., our growth rate in the fourth quarter was 1.3 times higher than the industry. In uh, Europe, um, we grew five times more than the industry. And in Latin America, we continue to gain share in the quarter and for the full year. So, you know, we believe the categories where we are a global leader, mm-hmm. dolls, uh, vehicles, and infant or the preschool will continue to perform well. And we expect to accelerate um, uh, growth and increase uh, overall share. Well, talk to me about some of the brands. Listen, I have grown up with Mattel. I'm from a large family. You know, inheriting my older sister's Barbies was a big thing. And then I've got a 17-year-old where I've Biddy Baby, Kit, Marie Grace. These were all uh, throughout my home. Um, So tell me a little bit about some of the brands. Talk to me about Barbie. Talk to me about Hot Wheels. Talk to me about American Girl uh, and then games. What what, what kind of growth have you seen? This was a very exciting quarter for uh, all of our brands. Barbie continued to go from strength to strength, up 18% in the quarter and for the year, with retail sales up more than 30%. Hmm. Uh, Barbie ended up being the overall uh, number one toy property globally uh, for the industry, both in the fourth quarter and full year. 
the Barbie Dream House was the number one toy in the U.S. in the fourth quarter and the full year. Had and, one of those you know, in my Barbie... house. I had one of those in my house a few years ago. <laughs> so, you, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's been really, you know, an incredible multi-year journey for Barbie, um, carrying the flag for diversity, inclusivity, and purposeful play. Mm-hmm. But you know what? What is um, what is interesting is that you know, without taking anything away from the incredible success of Barbie, uh, this is you know very much a story about the Mattel playbook, because the Barbie success is driven by the same methodology, same capabilities, uh, same approach. Um, uh, that we that we applied across uh, our entire product offering. Meaning it's what? About brand. Yeah. So it's about brand purpose, mm-hmm. uh, design-led innovation, cultural relevance, and and executional excellence. You know, Tim, we're definitely seeing and hearing a lot more companies listening to consumers in the broader society about what's going on and staying relevant and trying to be much more culturally sensitive when it comes to their products. That was Mattel Chairman and CEO Enon Kreis. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Up next. To expedite the boarding process, we're going to ask that you please step out of the aisle once you have found your assigned seat. ABC are on your right, D, E, and F are on the left. Well, so many of us can't wait to hear that sound again. And when will we be regularly hopping on planes? We'll check in with Trivago CEO, Axel Hefer. This is Bloomberg. is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Ah, traveling. Tim, uh, when's the last time you got on a plane for a vacation? I know exactly when because I've been thinking about it a lot. I went skiing at the end of February, early March last year, and that was the last time I uh, went on a vacation. It's a long time. I know. I think I traveled around the Super Bowl. We had a remote for work. Uh, and so it's been a really, really long time. And That doesn't count, Carol. You were working. <laughs> Even if it was the Super Bowl. That's not a vacation. No, it was a lot of fun. It was Florida. It was warm. It was a lot of fun. And we've got a story this week, too. Um, you know, we're all wondering about when it kind of gets back to, quote, unquote, normal. The Biden administration, they are considering whether to impose domestic travel restrictions, including on Florida. I mean, they're worried about the coronavirus mutations threatening to reverse all the problems progress that we've made on the pandemic. The travel industry hit hard. We've talked with him many times throughout the health crisis, giving us a great frontline view of what's happening or not happening in the travel industry. Axel Hefer is CEO of the online travel platform Trivago. I mean, the, the, the times are still pretty difficult um, for travel, obviously, but then for, for all of us with all the restrictions around the world. On the other hand, um, I do think that there is, is clear hope and there is a clear path to, um, to a return to a more normal life in the second half of the year, with some countries being very successful in um, vaccinating very quickly um, and more and more um, vaccination production capacity um, coming online. So it, it's a mix um, of, of a very, very difficult uh, present and uh, an improving outlook um, for the future. Before we look forward a little bit, tell me, I mean, so is everything pretty quiet still? Is it like it's been largely the last year or so, or are you seeing some activity a little bit on your platform? I mean, the, the tra- travel is, uh, travel activity is very limited. Yeah. Um, so we, we've, we've seen quite a lot of travel in the third quarter of last year, where the infections came down pretty much everywhere in the Northern Hemisphere. And you could clearly see that there is a huge demand of, um, of, of all of us getting a break and traveling, seeing friends and family and, and just going to the beach or the mountains. But then 
with the autumn um, coming, infections have obviously come up and travel has collapsed pretty much um, in all of our main markets. So the, the demand is, is very quiet, but um, yeah, we, are, we are focusing on on the recovery and um, yeah. improving our product offering. Yeah. Well, well, it's interesting to watch an Expedia reporting, uh, Disney reporting earnings. You know, we're watching to, in terms of, uh, you know, indications of when they start to see their parks opening. How do you see it? This is a second half story, a third quarter, fourth quarter story. I mean, how do you see it maybe, you know, playing out here? It, it's very difficult to predict, but we are we are very confident that by the third quarter, most of the main markets will have made um, a lot of progress um, in in, um, in the vaccination program, so that there will be a return to to travel in summer. And the the question when the summer will start will um, will obviously be answered slightly differently market by market. If you mm-hmm. look at countries like Israel, um, I mean, they will be fully vaccinated much, much earlier than, than some countries in continental Europe and um, the UK and the US being somewhere in the middle. So as soon as there is sufficient progress and through the, um, the, the better weather, um, mm-hmm. the, the new infections will drop, there will be some return to travel. Well, and what's interesting too, and I think you and I, Axel, have talked about it before, you know, this whole idea of a health passport or some kind of COVID, you know, vaccine certificates to allow you to go, you know, cross border. Are we going to, do we need that in order for this to work and for the travel industry to really open up? Uh, it, it's a good question. And I, I think it's a, it's a, the, the question is to me more a political question, how this mm. would be implemented. I mean, if you, if you would only allow um, for vaccinated people to travel, I think that that is, um, could, could create quite some, some issues because there is a certain certain a sequence of um, of handing vaccinations out um, so so there is a clear preference to a certain um, age groups in particular whereas if you use the vaccination passports to make it easier to travel so to um, to lift the requirements of a quarantine or of um, of multiple tests um, I think that that is a different matter and um, it, it would for sure help to make it easier but the key thing that is holding travel back is more the predictability yeah? so mm-hmm. will I be able to go somewhere what kind of experience will I have and will I be able to return uh, without an unexpected imposition imp- of a new quarantine restrictions or, or travel restrictions do you anticipate too and I think we've talked about this too that the type of travel that maybe we continue to see at least for at least the first half of the year, and maybe even into the second half of the year, is much more, you know, country, within a country, you know, and it's a lot more of local travel. Do we continue to see that kind of thing versus cross-border? Yeah, I, I would expect the same pattern that we've seen in 2020. So first, uh, friends and family, um, and predominantly domestic or um, neighboring international, so for the U.S., Mexico, and then um, continental Europe, for example, for Germany, was a lot of Netherlands and Austria. Um, and then um, with more progress, uh, also some international travel. And international travel obviously requires um, a lot more improvement as you need an improved situation in the country of origin and the country of destination to then um, uh, install um, travel corridors. But uh, domestic will, will be the first for sure to recover. You sound exhausted. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it, it has been it has been pretty much exactly a year. I, actually, I we, we reported we, we reported um, this week, and uh, I looked it up. So the the um, the first earnings uh, that we reported Q4 2019, actually uh, February 11th, we we had this one sentence in the shareholder letter that said there is the new um, virus spreading in Asia, and 
we don't think that we can make um, uh, give any guidance uh, because there is some uncertainty. Um, and of course, it turned out very, very different than what we anticipated. But right. um, I think now that we are in 2021, we we are closer to the end of the pandemic than than to the beginning, and and that's the way to think about it. Yeah. So today, have an optim, um, be an optimist and and focus on on the recovery rather than than looking at the the difficult times uh, that we are still in right now. Right, because I know all the times that we've talked to you over the past year, I mean, this whole idea we talked about, you know, that we don't have a playbook. We're we're kind of finding our way through it. And I do feel like vaccines are certainly a game changer. Dr. Anthony Fauci, at least here for the U.S., says U.S. vaccine supply should increase enough by April to allow anyone who wants a shot to begin getting one. That, to me, like we're we're getting, you know, goalposts like this, signposts like this, to give us some idea of, of visibility going forward. You... I'm assuming you're talking to a lot of people in the travel industry. You know, you talk about the second half. Is everybody kind of talking about the second half at this point? I, I think there, there is, there is a wide consensus that in the second half, we should see a significant improvement. Um, whether we see it a bit earlier there, obviously, there are very, very different assumptions. And, and um, the difference in perspective um, on, the, on the second quarter is predominantly driven by the uncertainty around the, the new virus uh, variants. Mm-hmm. So how quickly will they spread? What exactly will that mean for um, the, the increase in uh, infections? And on the other hand, how quickly um, will the vaccination programs be rolled out and how quickly will the mortality rate drop? And depending on, on your view on those two questions, you are, you're more positive or more skeptical um, for a bit earlier uh, recovery and earlier start of the summer. So how do you continue to run a company in this environment? I know you've got to worry about employees. Um, tell me where you are with that. And, and I'm also, how do you do kind of long-term strategic planning in this type of environment? Or do you kind of just have to put it on hold until you get through this? I mean, on the, on the business side, um, it, it is actually not that difficult because the, the, every, every data point that we look at, every survey that you look at, shows that there is an increasing desire to travel. I mean, the longer the lockdowns uh, and the restrictions last, the more we all want to travel and you know, see friends and family and, and really get out of there and, and break out of the routine. So there is very strong demand, and, and we are not worried at all that there will be no, uh, no rebound once things are more under control. Mm-hmm. The bigger challenge um, is, is, I think, I mean, not specific to travel, it's, it's the challenge that we are all facing that this has been going on now, depending on where you live for, for a year, and, and uh, we are all exhausted. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. it's difficult to, to live in a, in a world where um, you, you basically spend most of your time at home, where the schools are closed in a lot of countries and a lot of regions where you need to be um, a, a parent, an employee, uh, and a teacher at the same time. Um, uh, in parallel, basically, and um, that's why I, I think what what will make it make much easier and give us a lot of relief will be the the reopening of of schools wherever they are closed, and then also the reopening of some um, activities that that allow you to, to allow us to break out of the routine, and then the step after that is travel. Um, yeah. And I think once we see the first steps that that that, that allow us to. To have a, a bit more normal life, the, the pressure that we all feel will will be um, will ease a lot, and and that is also the, the the key challenge in running a travel business, but running any business, I would say. I mean, do you anticipate that in the second half you could see your business up 
200, 300, 400% as people who, as you said, I'm with them. Uh, I'm tired of it. You know, I've been basically living in a bubble for the most part and, um, you know, can't kind of wait to be able to just kind of break out a little bit. Do you anticipate that we could see some kind of off the charts kind of increases when it comes to travel? There, there, um, there, there will be definitely be a rebound. I mean, how much exactly mm. is, is almost impossible to, to predict, to be honest, because you will still have certain parts of the population that will see friends and family, but will be reluctant to, to really travel, will not feel, feel fully safe. That was one of our go-to voices on the travel industry, Travago CEO Axel Hefer. And that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenebeck. More ahead in our next hour, including... Our cover story, Apple is the $2.3 trillion fortress that Tim Cook built. Plus, people getting direct recurring cash payments and income. Is it more than a pipe dream? And I got another question for all of you. Do you want to be famous? How about fake famous? That's the name of a new documentary. We're going to talk about that and go into the world of influencers. And grab a glass of a nice Cabernet or Cote de Rhone. We're catching up with the founder of Vivino on raising money. It was a lot of money, too. And more people raising glasses during the pandemic. You had me at grab a glass. This (laughs) is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic of Bloomberg Quick Take. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including city programs to provide unconditional cash payments to residents why we need them. Plus, you too can become an Instagram influencer. It's all in a new HBO documentary, Fake Famous. We've got the filmmaker. Even me, Tim? Even you. Anyone can do it. (laughs) I love this story. And it's five o'clock somewhere. A lot of that going on during the pandemic. We're going to check in with the founder of wine app startup, Vivino. First, though, this week's cover story. It was a good one. And it's all about Apple, a deep dive into Tim Cook's company. And Carol, one thing that I was really surprised and, and interested yeah. in is is just how quickly Apple went from $1 trillion to $2 trillion. It only took 24 months. It's amazing. Yeah. But it took like, you know, the entire history of Apple to reach $1 trillion. It's pretty remarkable, right? And I got to say, this was among our most read on the Bloomberg This Week. And reporting for Bloomberg Business Week, another deep dive by Bloomberg News technology reporter Austin Carr. Check it out. We lead off the story uh, with a big quote by Warren Buffett, who said, you know, Tim may not be able to design a product like Steve, but he's some he's a real phenomenal manager and someone who understands the world to a degree that very few CEOs over, that he's met over the past 60 years can match. And we wanted to explore what that means. You know, how is it that he was still able to build Apple into a two-point $3 trillion company without being a product visionary, which is what, as you noted, Apple was known for with uh, Jobs at the Helm. And how Cook did that with, was through Apple's supply chain, through his operational management, uh, through his handling of China, especially during the trade war, as well as his diplomacy efforts during the Trump administration. So this story is sort of a deep dive into the other half of Apple, the side that you really don't see that often doesn't get as much attention because it's it's a little bit complicated and wonky, and, and it's just hard to explain. And we wanted to bring that, that side of Apple to life. But that, that's Tim Cook, right? He's complicated. He, he's wonky. He's supply chain guy. He's, he's not Steve Jobs, right? He's not the product guy. He's the behind the scenes, like, get it done guy, right? 
absolutely. Yeah, it was it was funny. Some of the people that we that we talked to very early in his days at Apple, um, they they actually described him, which is so anti Steve Jobs. They describe one, one person we talked to described him as quote exceptionally boring, which is such a funny way <laughs> to describe someone exceptionally boring. Um, but that's because he's he's a numbers guy. He's a spreadsheet uh, guru. He's someone who can just find the minutia in the tiniest of uh, of, of part costs of component uh, issues and and sort of manage to build up an outsourced supply chain that Apple depends on for all its products. And I think the the major thing is uh, Apple gets so much credit because Steve Jobs and their former design head, Johnny Ive, can design a product like the iPhone or iMac or iPod. But equally as important is that Tim Cook was able to manufacture millions of those products. So it's not just that a person can design a single product, it's that uh, Tim Cook can, can turn out tens of millions, hundreds of millions of these devices. And that's how Apple was successful. If they couldn't do that, if they couldn't get their supply chain to be economic, there's no way Apple would have been successful uh, you know, over the last 10 years or even during the Jobs era. I want to also say, and you write about this in such great detail, Tim Cook also kind of a master politician. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I feel like has not gotten enough attention is just how he handled that relationship in Washington. Uh, if you think about the last four years, Apple was uniquely vulnerable. I mean, Trump came into office, um, you know, with, with threats of a trade war, with tariffs and uh, threats that, that could have really disrupted Apple's supply chain. There was a lot of calls and personal attacks on CEOs for outsourcing jobs um, and, and their reliance on China and the tech industry. And you would think that, that Tim Cook would have really not been in a good position uh, to sort of navigate those those rough waters, but instead the the company thrived during the Trump era. And when we talked to, to to Washington insiders, you know what they really said was he was in Washington more than any tech CEO, perhaps as much as any CEO in the world, just sort of always offering to help uh, where they could sort of o- find overlap and common ground. And when we talked to Gary Cohn, who was the former chief economic advisor, he was just saying that what really struck him was not just how much he was at the White House, but also that he wasn't just all about asking about tax issues or tariff issues or trying to focus the attention on what can benefit Apple. But he was more so offering, how can I help you guys with your agenda when it comes to just other political issues? And I think that really positioned him well to sort of escape more attacks from Trump personally as a CEO, but also put him in a good position to exploit potential tariff exemptions. Uh, It allowed him to receive tax exemptions on products ranging from the Mac Pro to the iPhone and Apple Watch. And these tariffs could have been huge, hugely disruptive. There was analysts that would have estimated that had uh, some tariffs go into to, and, and levies go into place, it could have added $150 or more to each uh, sale of an iPhone, uh, iPhone, which would have been tremendously disruptive. Wow. Right. So the fact that Tim Cook was able to avoid that, in part by these sort of constant outreach to, to, to President Trump and, and Jared and Ivanka, um, you know, really helped the Apple uh, sort of cause over the last four years. Well, it's kind of too, Austin, like an odd couple I think safe to say that most would say Donald Trump and Tim Cook, but yet there are pictures of them touring uh, a factory. And I have to say, that's one of my favorite parts of your story about this factory. I think it was, was it in Austin? Um, And the optics that Tim Cook made sure happened. Yeah, I mean, that that was another thing that that someone uh, that had worked in the Trump administration told us, that that, that Tim Cook was also very skilled at, at trading 
optics. Uh, yeah. You recognize that this was a president that really wanted uh, mainstream business validation. He wanted to be seen with the big CEOs out there uh, to sort of, you know, uh, as a testament to his art of the deal bona fide. Huh. And, and this, the, the Texas factory, which is something that they had gone to tour together, Tim Cook and Donald Trump, in November 2019, and it was supposed to sort of exemplify the reshoring efforts, the, the bringing jobs back from Shenzhen. That was Bloomberg News technology reporter Austin Carr. Check out that story and more in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week on newsstands online at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week coming up. Runway has been trying to think of innovative ways to make sure that businesses that we care about stay active, continue to employ folks and make wonderful products. We're going to hear from the leader of a 100 percent black and brown woman led firm about helping to build wealth for people of color. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So, Tim, one of the things the pandemic really brought to light is about the disparities that we are seeing in our society, in our economy, specifically wealth gaps uh, that we are seeing between black and white people. Yeah, we're reminded of it every day with mm-hmm. the unequal recovery and the unequal impact that this pandemic has had. We did catch up with the head of one company, though, that's working to change that. That's right. Jessica Norwood is who we spoke with. She's the founder and CEO of Runway. The firm describes itself as a financial innovation company, and they're committed to dismantling systemic barriers and reimagining financial policies and practices. And it helps to build black community wealth through early stage funding and more. Check it out. We started off uh, thinking about uh, Runway and the uh, disparity of black businesses, which Unfortunately, right now, due to COVID and um, and just the historical imbalance of uh, African Americans' ability to access capital, the racial wealth gap, that gap prior to uh, COVID um, was somewhere around about $10,000 in combined wealth on average across the country for black people and about 142000 for white folks around the country, combined wealth. Um, and since COVID, everybody, uh, whites, blacks, um, everybody has taken a hit. And so that number has been completely decimated. Uh, and Runway has been trying to think of innovative ways to make sure that these businesses that we care about um, stay active, continue to employ folks, and make wonderful products as we know them to do. Well, and it's interesting, you guys, and we did a great Bloomberg story about some of the work that you're doing, specifically about these guaranteed income pilot projects. Tell us a little bit about this, where you're actually giving residents money, no strings attached, um, you know, to help out specifically small businesses. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. All right. So this this started right as the, at the time where everything was closing down around us. This was probably April 2020, and um, the funding... Uh, the fund team at Runway came together to talk about our uh, portfolio of companies, mm-hmm. and they range um, from uh, uh, wonderful, you know, food makers and artisans and um, all kinds of tech companies and so forth. What could we do to make sure that that group of folks um, made it through? And we really believe in the community of our entrepreneurs, and we believe that um, our survival is really dependent on theirs. So. We thought about it, and we came up with thinking that what we needed is cash um, and that they needed a guaranteed income payment, something that they knew every month that was going to come in that could help them to make some of the adjustments and some decisions 
that we all had to face around child care and slowing of business. We have one company that was a florist that did a lot of events in the summer. And so how do those companies start to pivot, um, go online more, um, and just deal with the, the, the things that happen day to day in their life? So we decided that um, a cash payment every month for a few months would help give some of that breathing space to make those decisions. And one of the things that was so important for us is for us to say that it didn't matter what they did with that money. They didn't have to report to us. They didn't have to make an application to get it or anything. It was a conversation with them about what we could do that would help them in this moment in time. And when we look at the success of it, 100% of our businesses are still active and going and hiring people. And the amount of money that we were able to to move to them was really nominal when we look at the ripple effect of what it means for those businesses to be up and running right now um, at this time. Well, like if you think about it, right, if you're able to keep these businesses going, the impact on the family specifically, the business owner, but then again, anybody they employ, and then ultimately as that business gets bigger, it becomes, you know, casts a wider net. What's interesting is you've done a lot of research on this um, and have looked into, and it's something that we actually talked this week with the former head of the FDIC, Sheila Baer, about banks. They, you know, in terms of lending to minority communities or or minority business owners, especially the big banks, they're not so good. That's right. That's right. One of the really incredible things that came out during this time, Carol, was a report from, um, I think it came out in August or maybe beginning of September, from um, um, the Federal Reserve of New York that talked about this very issue and said specifically that it was because of systemic racism inside of the financial institution that made it so that these businesses that we're talking about were undercapitalized from the very beginning and therefore could not sustain this level of, of, of blow, of closure, and so forth. So we, we also looked at the data um, from the PPP uh, uh, program that the banks were administering. And again, we saw numbers where African-American entrepreneurs um, did not get the same access to uh, those uh, funds as other businesses did. And so we have a historic blind spot <clears throat> inside of the financial industry, particularly with banking. And Runway has been really active since the very beginning to work with uh, depository institutions like banks and credit unions, um, even some uh, CDFI loan funds and so forth, but to talk with them about those in these underlying biases that are coded inside of their underwriting process, right. how we can change those things, right, and, and incentivizing those changes. So we're able to bring a lot of folks who are investing alongside of us who are really ready to put their money into banks that are going to be the kind of actors that are going to actually help these businesses. Well, so listen, and we, I feel like so much yeah. of the work you're doing, too, it's, and, and we're getting much more clarity and being much more deliberate and specific. It's not just gaps in income. It's really gaps in in wealth and and I know in the Bloomberg story that we wrote because of the racial wealth gap the median net worth of white families is an estimated $171,000 compared to $17,150 median net worth of black families I mean that Jessica is huge it's huge it's huge and I think what why runway is so um, important in this time is as, as you described we're a financial innovation firm and what we mean is 
we don't think that there's a one-size solution or thing that's going to actually change it. I think that there have been multiple failures along the way that have gotten that level of wealth to where it is from places around income, inequality, to housing, um, to business, you know, there, uh, education, spending. There have been a lot of places where we can really look at this. But what is, what is important at this point is for us to be deeply innovative, that the things that we used to do for disaster or for business supports will not solve a historical problem. We have to be much more creative about it. And I think that's why a runway firm um, is really growing at this particular time. That was Jessica Norwood, founder and CEO of Runway. Still to come on Bloomberg Business Week, we've been looking forward to this one. Do you want to be famous? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Sign me up. That's from the HBO documentary Fake Famous, the filmmaker and creator of Instagram influencers Nick Bilton joining us. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So, Tim, do you want to be famous? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a question also asked by a new HBO Max documentary. It really provides a great window into the world of influencers. It's called Fake Famous, and it's been described as a year-long social experiment to turn three individuals into Instagram influencers. Well, there are no shortage of people who want to become famous mm-hmm. behind the camera, in front of the camera. And the person creating the influencers is veteran technology journalist Nick Bilton. He's written for Vanity Fair, The New York Times. He's also the author of Hatching Twitter, a true story of money, power, friendship and betrayal. Nick wrote, produced and directed the film. He joined us from L.A. I've been a technology reporter for almost 20 years now, and um, I was at Vanity Fair about five years ago, and Graydon Carter was my editor-in-chief, and, you know, we were kicking around a few documentary ideas over the years, and a couple of years back, he said, oh, we should do a documentary on influencers, Uh, and I said, oh, well, the whole industry is a a bit of a joke, and he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I could make an influencer in 10 minutes, and he said, well, that's our documentary. And um, and that was essentially how this all began. And I had been at the New York Times. Uh, I'd written about bots, you know, these these uh, fake accounts that exist on social media that can be created by uh, writing code and so on. And I had written about the rise of them and how advanced they were getting over the years. I had then written about them when I was um, at Vanity Fair talking about the election, how Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton both had millions and millions of fake accounts following them. And, of course, influencers uh, employed these same tactics, and that was essentially what we wanted to show in the film. Hey, Nick, you say that influencer culture is a, is a bit of a joke, but, hey, there's there's real money behind this, and, and there's real money behind it still, even though it seems like a lot of people and, and companies are in on the joke. Well, I think it's interesting because there is real money behind it, um, but it's at the same time, it's not, it's, it is so inauthentic in, in the way that the money you know, changes hands in the way that influencers essentially purport to be kind of these these new bearers of ideas and, and culture and, and consumerism and so on. It's, you know, when we really kind of show this in the film, I mean, one of the things that we talk about is is how influencers, the entire concept of it uh, is, is, a, is, a, is very similar to advertising, but even more extreme 
in that the whole goal is to make you feel worse about yourself so that you want to experience what an influencer experiences in their wonderful life of their free vacations and their fancy Lamborghinis and this, that, and the other. And and really, they're getting all this stuff for free, but they're not necessarily being honest about whether they actually like it or not. This is like kind of social media at its core, though, right? It's not just influencers oh, who, yeah. are, who are posting the highlight reel, right? This is like how, how normal people use Instagram, right? They, they show off the best parts of their lives. It's like the holiday letter, you know, the trips to yeah. Africa and the kids are all getting straight A's <laughs> on steroids. Yeah. Well, it's it's completely true. I think that you know, Instagram. I I personally believe is is the the worst at this. Is they're, they're the guiltiest of it because Instagram was founded on this idea of of being deceptive to the viewer, and it, um, the whole point of filters that were that were the highlight of Instagram was to make your your really bad photo look really good by just pressing a single button. And it and the the founders of Instagram they wanted it to feel like like a Vogue magazine or a Vanity Fair. They wanted people to post these beautiful shot images and make it appear as if, you know, that was the life that you were living. And I think that the end result of that was that you now have a, a system in place where I think it's just the most inauthentic platform on the Internet. Every every platform has their problems. You have Twitter where, it's you know, everyone's just angry at everyone else and you know they all have their thing but but instagram i think is is the absolute most deceptive of them all kids want to do this they want to be influencers they want to be famous which is something you ask a group of of 20 somethings right when you kind of line up a couple of people to 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 work with so the, the the one of the other aspects of the beginning of this film that we did a lot of research into and i had i had read about before was um it, when you look at the studies that have been done, there's all these longitudinal studies that have been done, UCLA's done them, other, other um, universities too, where over the years they ask kids every single year, what do you want to be when you grow up? And back in the 60s and 70s, kids used to be a, wanted to be a teacher or a lawyer or a doctor. Back in the 80s, they started to kind of get a little bit interested in fame, but it was fame for something that they had done, like they wanted to be a basketball player or, or an actor or something. Fast forward to today, and kids just want to be famous. And they want to be famous influencers because they think that is the fast track to get there. You know what, Carol? I, I think what's so surprising to me is just how many kids want to be influencers when they grow up. Like, I'm actually disturbed by it. I was just going to say, when you when you start talking about it, that's what I found most disturbing, I think, about the documentary is the idea of kids. It's not about being doctor, lawyer, teacher. It's about being an influencer yeah. from a really early age. Who knows? Maybe that'll change in, in a few years. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, that was veteran technology journalist Nick Bilton. Coming up... Grab a nice glass of red or white or whatever you like. We're going to catch up with the founder of Online Wine Marketplace and App Vivino, who has seen usage take off during the pandemic. What I loved about this interview, Carol, is you were able to drink wine while you did the interview. <laughs> you know, for not. research purposes, right? <laughs> I did not, but I might be drinking as I listen to us over the weekend. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. 
So some recent news, Wine Startup Vivino, they recently raised $155 million, uh, Tim. They're looking to expand into new countries. They're adding staff. They really want to build out their recommendation engine after more than doubling wine sales during the pandemic. Doubling. Double. Well, can we talk about this $155 million? I mean, that is a big funding round. You caught up with Vivino's CEO and founder, Heine Zachariasen. Full disclosure, I love great red wine, and I do use the Vivino app. We began, though, by talking about how his world has been. We didn't know what was going to happen, right? So we had a, we have people in Hong Kong, too. They had seen something. But once it hit the U.S., we're talking mid-March or so, we actually started by sort of popping the brakes a little bit and say, okay, what's this going to be? What's this going to look like? What's going to happen to our sales? And But we pretty quickly saw that it was going to move us sales-wise in the right direction. So so things when we hit 20th of March, things just jumped. You know, revenue just went way, way up there. In the beginning, we also had a little bit of problems with, you know, customer support and supply and so on. So that took us a month or two to really get back up to speed, um, but like a crazy time for us. And, yeah. and you know, it was it was rough, but, but numbers were good. Yeah, but so pretty quickly, March, that all of a sudden, um, you know, and has it been pretty consistent in terms of growth or have you seen a steady increase from month to month? It was, it really jumped up for, for two, three months and mm-hmm. went like totally crazy, right? <laughs> and, and we maybe in the beginning thought, okay, what is this? It's just like a short-term thing. People want to make sure they have wine or so. But then it stabilized at a certain level and, and it's been really, really good ever since that, you know, just more buyers converting and, and just higher numbers all over. And even when Europe sort of opened up over the summer, we didn't see numbers really go down again. So we were just landed at a new level. Well, that's what I want to ask you. And I'm sure, listen, honey, that a lot of people are asking you, and, and we all wonder that, okay, there are these trends, whether you're a Peloton, whether you're, you know, what have you, you know, do what we've seen over the last year because of the pandemic and we were, you know, forced to, you know, predominantly be in our homes, work from our homes, live in our homes. Do, do, do those trains, trends stay with us? What indications do you have that the growth that you've seen, that you hold on to it and it continues to stay with you as the world starts to reopen? Yeah, it's a good question, right? I think first we can say for certain, like, wine is probably not a fad, right? It's probably going to stay with us. Not in my world. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so they're probably going to keep buying wine. But what I, our theory and, and what we, we, we've seen so far, especially when Europe opened again, is that, you know, it's really, really hard to get people to change habits. Mm-hmm. But if you have something that is more convenient and easier and so on, you know, they, they don't go back. Like, like we buy most of our supermarket stuff online now, this is me personally, and I would never go back. Like once I've seen it work, I'm just not going back. And the same goes for something like Amazon, right? There's a reason why we do it, because once we start doing it, it's incredibly convenient. And, and the same goes for, for buying wine online. Well, and I'm curious about your demographic. Who's your, do you have a typical user? And if so, describe who they are and what kind of buying do you typically see from them? So, so we, we have 50 million users around the world. So it's really, really difficult for us to, to say what a typical user is. Um, previously, I would say pre-pandemic, it was people that were a little bit more into wine, not like not the high-end user, mm-hmm. more the, the the higher end of the casual drinkers. But now I think it's changed. Like we we see everybody doing it now. We also see price points moving down. That doesn't mean people dry people buy wine that's less expensive. It just means that we're taking more from the offline part and 
people are starting to buy less expensive wines online now too. Full disclosure, I love the Vivino app. I use it. I think what's really cool about it, um, Heine, to be quite honest, is I can be anywhere. And if I have someone, I can quick take a picture. I quick get some views. I can buy it. Like It's just wonderful and it's so easy. I do wonder too, like how sticky is it? Once you've got somebody who's on the platform, do they automatically become a buyer, a shopper? Do they continue to increase it? Like how does it, how does it play out? It varies quite a bit. It is obviously an app, so you do lose a lot of people in the beginning. Mm. But once people start going, right, after people have used it for one year, it just doesn't change. Like once they're on board, have used it for one year, that feels like it's a lifetime. We've been around for 10 years now, so we have pretty good data on that. So so the people that really appeal to, um, they just keep going. So, so that's amazing. Obviously, we build new features all the time right. and so on to make it better and better. Is the U.S. your best market, your fastest growing, or where is it? Uh, U.S. is by far our biggest market commercially. Uh, around 50% of our sales are in the U.S., so by far the biggest. Uh, not the fastest growing, um, I mean, relative to, to the market, it's mm-hmm. by far the biggest, but, but some other markets have started late. Uh, this might be a little bit strange, but actually France started relatively late, <laughs> and funny. now it's growing really, really. It, it took them a while to accept us, like, yeah. we're not French, so, <laughs> so they wouldn't accept us, but now they love us, so, so we're happy with them now. Well, so what are you going to do with the money, $155 million that you guys have raised? What, how do you need to spend it? And I am always curious, for an app like yours, what's your most expensive, you know, when you go through the balance sheet? Is it the people? Is it marketing? What's the most expensive item, line item? Yeah, we're, we're very privileged in the way that we spend very little money on marketing historically, right? Yeah. Because we have 20,000 people that install the app every single day, organically. So, wow. so that's a privilege. Uh, when it comes to that, that might change in the future. Just to, we we have a little bit more cash now, um, but but for us, it's all about you know helping people drink better wine. So number one on our list is really upgrading product engineering, just to make the product even better. And a lot of that is about using machine learning and AI to really learn every single user. You know, we know all these wines. We have 12 million wines on there. And then we have these 50 million users. And one thing is giving them ratings, but we want to give them personal ratings, just like Netflix does. Mm-hmm. So we're launching something called Match For You. So once, once you scan a wine, you're not just going to see the rating. You're also going to say, you know, it's 89% certain that Carol will like this wine. So that we're very excited about. That's really interesting. That's really clever. Where are the areas uh, in the world that you're not yet in terms of geography that you want to be that you need to be? Yeah, I think Asia is, is, has been a slower region for us. Yeah. It usually starts with, with the real wine lovers that start using it, and then it, sl- then it spreads after that. Uh, but there's no doubt about, like, North America and even South America and Europe are strongest you know, uh, places. Asia is, is lagging a little bit after, but, uh, but we're starting to grow there now, too. So, no. Yeah, no, interesting. Um, and I'm also curious, so I think I was just looking at some of the numbers, and at least some of our reporting, this recent funding round of 155 million values you guys between 600 and 800 million does that feel about right that's a good question Uh, (laughs) (laughs) we had some bloomberg analysts estimate that and uh, and i'm not going to comment in further okay fair (laughs) enough fair enough maybe over a glass of wine we can talk about it sometime um take a a lot of wine (laughs) okay that's fair Uh, a lot of good wine um you're not profitable yet right and probably not this year nor next why 
if it's doing actually, so well we, and you guys are adding, you know, I'm just curious. No, actually, in 2020, we were profitable. So we, so oh, okay. we did break even. As soon as this hit, we break, broke even. And I honestly, I think that's also why we managed to really raise a lot of money. It's people saw, wow, this business model really, really works. The unit economics are solid. The growth is there. Let's put some real money on this and see if we can grow it even faster. So, so we've really shown that the business model and the unit economics are strong. And that profitability continues this year, next year? There's, you're pretty confident no, of that? We're or not, no? Yeah. No, we're not planning to do that because now we really want to invest, right? So, so we've managed to show that it, it, you know, it all works, but now we're going to invest a lot more uh, to fuel the growth. Got it, got it. And so what's the end game for you guys? Uh, do you plan to, I know, and I know you probably get asked these questions a million times, but I have to ask <laughs> you. Um, what is the end game? Go it alone, continue to grow the business. You've just gotten another capital raise. There's a lot of money out there. There's also a pretty healthy IPO market, you know, and it's been. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. So how do you want to do it? I think it's a good question. I think my answer has always been, and, 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 you know, we're closer to something now, obviously, but really build a sustainable business, also a business that could stand alone, right? I, mm-hmm. When you think about the wine market being like almost like $400 billion, if we get a slice of that, this could be a really big sustainable business. So, you know, I think, you know, someone might be interested in acquiring us, uh, but I think IPO is something I, I really like at some point, too. Well, and it sounds like, you know, honey, from what you told me is now that you've got this money, right, you said 2020, you did break even, you've shown kind of the world that we can do this. Um, so you've got some more money that you mentioned you want to put into upgrading your product, engineering, and so on. Is that what you need, ideally, to kind of move the platform and the business to the next level? Because you've got a lot of users. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I think it's also about, like, the thing about we are a global business, right? We are actually in 17 markets. The marketplace is open in 17 markets, right? Mm-hmm. We're only 200 people, so we really want to go a little bit deeper into each market. That was Vivino CEO and founder Heine Zachariasen. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenevec. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube, just search Bloomberg Global News. And check out, too, our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. Find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And that's where you're going to find our extra podcast this week. Hear more of our conversation with veteran technology journalist Nick Bilton on his HBO Max documentary, Fake Famous. Find out how to fake being on an airplane. Yeah, it's easier than you think. All you need is a toilet seat and a big screen. That's all we're going to, you know, give away here. Yep. You can also see more of me on Bloomberg Quick Take available on Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Bloomberg Business Week gets available on newsstands right now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Have a good and safe weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.